two words, overacting. <laughs> oh, I think they had a little bit of fun. No. <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, you know, there are people, uh, most of you are praying for certain people that you want to bless, and one of the greatest ways that you can bless anyone is to introduce them to Christ, and this is a great, great thing to invite some of those people that you're praying for, and, uh, and so consider from that, from those people that you're praying to bless, uh, that maybe one of those is someone to invite to this for just a really good time of uh, conversation as well as a great cause and meeting some other brothers and sisters and some people uh, from our church besides, besides you. Uh, so encourage you to invite them. Also, if you missed last week's service, either online or uh, in person, we had uh, like 22 baptisms and the cool thing about it, I mean, really cool thing were the stories that were told. So uh, you go back, watch this service, or watch the Saturday night service, for example, um, because we put them all we put them all up, and just go just go watch and just go to the place where there's the baptisms and, and watch those. I think you'll be really really blessed by that. So we're starting a brand new series, a four week series called Your Work Matters, and it is an extension of the series that we did last fall. So last fall we did a series called The First Page, and it was on Genesis one and one of the things that we talked about is the fact that almost all the major themes of the Bible are introduced in the first page and connect the Bible all hyperlinks and just so much of it is hyperlinked back and hyperlinked from there forward. And um, so I said, you know, we're going to be coming back to certain subjects. The Holy Spirit one was an extension of that series. This is an extension of that series. And today we'll see that connection with the first page of the Bible. Today we're looking at um, why your work matters to God and God matters to your work. I have a 20-second video that I want to show you. And in this 20-second video, um, you'll see a kid, four years old, caught by the camera in the front of their house, uh, going out to, his, uh, to the school bus as he's going to go to preschool, and he's having a really bad case of the Mondays. And, uh, you know, as you're looking at it, you know, maybe you're going to see a little bit of yourself in this uh, come Monday morning. Let's watch. So in the news station that ran that, one of the news stations that ran that, they interviewed the dad, and the dad said, yeah, he was just not happy. It was Monday, going back to school, did, was not very happy, and he um, kind of, um, maybe overacts, <laughs> kind of uh, gets a, a little bit emotional, a little bit, uh, um, how, how, did he, how did he put it? A little bit overdramatic is the way that he put it. So contrast that with an article from The Atlantic uh, from a couple of years ago where the author of the article argues that there is a new and uniquely American religious craze. And he calls it the religion of worker, or of workness, uh, workism, the religion of workism. And he defines workism as the need to make work the centerpiece of your identity and of your life's purpose, making work the centerpiece. So we have two extremes. We have the person who hates to go to work, on Monday, 
we have the person who makes work an idol, a god, something that they serve that defines who they are. Now, it'd be tempting to say, let's try to find some middle ground between those two, but that's not how the Bible works. It's not that we're trying to find middle ground. We're trying to find a biblical perspective on how God looks at work. And that's something different than simply finding a middle ground. And if you get the difference, if you understand the difference, then your work, whether it's something you do paid or unpaid, it's gonna take on new meaning and it's gonna take on new purpose because your work matters to God and God matters to your work. That's the big idea for these four weeks of this series. So join me in praying the prayer of illumination where we ask God to illuminate uh, his, his word to us um, and, and make it come alive in our hearts and in our lives. Heavenly Father, by the Spirit and in the name of the Son, help us so to hear your word that we may truly understand that understanding we may believe and believing we may follow your way in all faithfulness, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wanna encourage you to open your Bibles to the very first page to Genesis chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the seat rack in front of you, you can grab one of those. Uh, if you're using a tablet or phone, uh, we're using the uh, New International Version translation. And uh, just remember, uh, the Bible, understanding it doesn't have to be a mystery. And that's why we open it and we look at it every week. So follow along as a couple of our five ochres read the passage to us. Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and Genesis 2, verse 15. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all wild animals, and over all creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And Genesis 2 verse 15, the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. All right, so your work matters to God and God matters to your work, but what is work? It's not as easy to define as you might think. Uh, I set out at the very beginning of writing the sermon to, to, to try to figure out how am I gonna define what work is so that everybody sees themselves reflected in this uh, because it's something that, that we all, uh, almost all of us do. Uh, to one degree or another. And, and so I, I tried everything. I, I looked up some of my favorite authors. I asked ChatGPT to uh, answer the question as if they were some of my favorite authors. And uh, all of them were good answers, but not, not exactly what I was looking for. So I made up my own. And so this is a working definition of work, um, at least for this sermon, whether some of the other teaching pastors <laughs> take it or not. We'll see. But here it is. Work is what you do, paid or unpaid that adds value to others. So work is what you do, paid or unpaid that adds value to others. So if you're employed, you're self-employed, that's your work. It, it might be your dream job. It might be your nightmare job. It might be something that you really don't like to do, but it might be something that, it is a thing that you're doing now, and it might be something that you're going to be doing for many years to come. But even if you hate it, 
Your work matters to God and God matters to your work. If you're a student, that's your work. In some ways, it's the work you're doing to prepare for work, but it's what God has called you to do right now and it matters to him. If you are the primary caregiver for your kids or for a parent or for a family member or foster children or a great friend, that's your work and it matters to God and God matters to the work that you are doing. If your spouse is the one who works for an income and you manage the household, managing the household is your work and God, it matters to God and God matters to the work that you're doing. Now, I want to give you, to, to even define this a little bit more, I want to give you the wrong answers to a question that people oftentimes ask us, okay? All right, so the question might be, what do you do for work? These are wrong answers, okay? I don't work, I'm retired. It's a wrong answer. I don't work, I'm a caregiver to my mom. Wrong answer. I don't work, I'm a stay-at-home dad. Wrong answer. I don't work, but I do volunteer in several organizations. Wrong answer. I want to encourage you to shift your mindset so that those inaccurate words, I don't work, if they are inaccurate in your life, never come out of your mouth again. If you're financially blessed in such a way that you yourself don't have to work at something that makes money, do you realize you have the ability to design your work in a way that most of the world and most of history has not had that opportunity? Design your job in a way that reflects the things that you love to do that God has you know, gifted you in. You have a wonderful opportunity to have a diversity of jobs um, uh, that you can take on because you don't have to go to a job, a regular job. Might even be fun to come up with a title for what you do. So my wife Lois uh, retired uh, this, this year and um, here's a, a portion of what she does. She, she has many jobs that she does that she's not getting income from, but she has many jobs that she does. But one of them might be, she could describe herself as, I am the CEO, CFO, and COO of Williams Incorporated. <laughs> and she, she does it really well. Um, if it fits, you might say something like, I'm a local missionary. Uh, or, I'm a freelance volunteer. Or I'm a kid's ministry Bible teacher or a spiritual mentor or a worship leader or a public speaker. Here's, here's a title that I will never have in my life. I can guarantee you I will never have this title in my life, but it might describe you. I'm the neighborhood handyman. <laughs> it's not going to be in me. Now, if it's true that you don't work, um, if the primary things that you do are things that you do by yourself and are focused on yourself and they don't produce anything for others, you need to get a job. You need to get a job. And I hate to be so blunt, but listen, even if you're confined to a nursing home, but you can talk, you can be the chief encouragement officer to the people who care for you and the people that live around you. My, my mother-in-law was that. She was in a nursing home, but she was in memory care, and, 
And um, she just was like this encourager to the people that worked uh, around her, that took care of her. I mean, so much so that she's in memory care, but she can remember not only the name of the nurse, but the baby that the nurse just had. Um, and she's come back to work. And so just an encouragement to the people around her, and they expressed that when she, when she died, um, what an encouragement she was. Um, if you're in a nursing home and you can't talk, but you can pray, you can be the auxiliary chaplain in that nursing home. You need a job because God created you to work. That's how God designed you, he created you to work. God calls you to, we, we just read it in the passage. We're gonna, we're gonna go over this several, several different ways um, in just a few moments. But God calls you to do work and simply focusing on yourself as the primary thing that you do is contrary to God's will in your life. All right, so the big idea is that your work matters to God and God matters to your work. And we're defining work as that thing you do, paid or unpaid, that adds value to others. The thing you do that adds value to others. Why? Why do we need to work? Why is it so important? Well, it's in your outlines, but it says your work matters to God and God matters to your work because you were made in the image of a God who works and delegates work to you. You are designed, created you in this way, to reflect God's workerness. That is a made up word, but it works. You're designed to reflect God's workerness. Okay, I'm gonna show you this like three or four times. <laughs> in three or four, I mean, I'm gonna basically say the same thing in different ways about three or four times, all right? So get ready for this. So Genesis 1 tells the origin story of humanity. And it, it explains uh, what our purpose is in the world, why we were made, what we were made for, what our purpose is in the world. Now, people, Christians, for centuries read this passage, still today, and oftentimes miss some of the main things it says um, for a host of reasons. They bring the wrong questions to the text and they miss what it says. Um, and I think a lot of times we think of this, the Bible, I mean, nobody would say this, but I think we think of this in our minds that someone one day sat down and wrote this whole thing, one person. And when they sat down and wrote it, it started like they're like, where am I going to start? Oh, let's, let's start in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it was just like, just like out of nowhere that this story was told, but it wasn't. It was written looking back. It was written looking back, but it was written at a particular time in history. And it was written for the people of Israel at a very particular time in their history. And so the words and the language, the ideas that are used on the first page of the Bible reflect, and I'm gonna show you this in a moment. We've talked about this before. This is gonna be like a review of something we did last fall, uh, but it's gonna be different uh, than I did the way I did it last fall. But it reflects the language ideas, the images that, um, that are used in Genesis chapter one. All right, so here we go. 
Genesis 1 is an account of the beginning written to a specific group of people, the Israelites, who endured at a time when they had gotten out of slavery. They had endured hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt and had been led out of slavery by a man named Moses. And they had been given a law to live by, including the Ten Commandments. Why am I saying all this before we go to the next slide? Why am I saying all this? Because all of this is reflected in Genesis 1. All right, almost all of it. You got to understand this. All right, let's continue. One of the commandments was to never make an image of God it's one of the Ten Commandments, which means they were forbidden to fashion an idol and say, this idol represents our God. That's what it means to, in the Ten Commandments, this is no idols. What he's saying is, don't make any, it's the same word, image. Don't make any images of me and say, this represents our God. It's one saying that, that nobody believed that the idol itself was a God. The idol always represented something else. But they were not to make an image of God because they themselves were the image of God. <laughs> All right? They had been given exact plans at this time in their history. They were being given exact plans for a portable temple, a tabernacle. They had been told, they'd been told when they were told the story about in the beginning, they had been told, you are a kingdom of priests. They'd been told that in Exodus. They'd been told that they are a kingdom of priests. And they had been told that someday they would have a permanent temple on a mountain in a land of their own, a land that God would give them. So let me be even more specific. So this is the second round of trying to help us read Genesis 1 in the way that it was written. While the Israelites were being told not to make an image of God, the origin story tells us that we are the image of God. Same word as idol. We are the image of God. We are made in God's image. While the Israelites were being instructed about the tabernacle and the work of the priests in the tabernacle, the origin story of humanity uses the same language that the law had to describe what the priest did, uses the same language as what is used in the origin story, talking about humanity and what work they were supposed to do. It uses the same language. In fact, um, as they are being told how the tabernacle should be built and how it should be decorated, part of the decoration is to make the tabernacle look like a garden. And then they're told in their origin story started in a garden. And while the Israelites are in the wilderness and they're being told how when they go into this promised land that God is going to give them, how they are going to be ruled and what rules they're going to live by, the origin story explicitly says that all humanity was created to rule over the earth. To rule over the earth. So if you read Genesis 1 and 2, with this audience in mind, you hear the clear message. The earth is created to be God's temple. That's its original purpose. And his image bearers serve both as priests for that earthly temple and as rulers over the earth. He ordains them and he delegates his kingdom and he endows them with authority to rule in his name. We are designed to be royal priests kings and priests. Now we're going to watch a Bible project video. I think now this will be our third run through this, uh, but it'll come differently. 
And I think you'll be more ready to understand why they start not in talking about what it means to be made in the image of God. They don't start with Genesis 1. They start with the Israelites in the wilderness. And we're not going to watch the whole video, but just understand that as we get to the New Testament, the Apostle Peter writing to the church says, you are royal priests. <laughs> you are royal priests. All right. All right, so all these themes are running together. So let's watch the video. So if you lived in ancient Israel, one of the most important places was the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a sacred tent that the Israelites carried as they journeyed to the promised land. And it was sacred because it's where the heavenly presence of Israel's God lived on earth. And the tabernacle had an important design to show just how special it was. There's the outer courtyard, then an entry room into the tent, and it leads into the center of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, God's personal throne room, and it's guarded by these heavenly hybrid creatures called cherubim. Notice, the closer that you get to the center, the more sacred the space becomes. The people who work in the tabernacle are called priests, and they care for the sacred space, offer sacrifices on behalf of Israel, and announce God's blessing over the people. Yeah, these priests represent God to the people, and they represent the people to God. So think of both the tabernacle and the priests who work in it like gateways that link together heaven and earth. And this is why the tabernacle was eventually brought up to settle on a mountain, because mountains are where earth meets heaven. Now, one thing that's missing in this tabernacle that you would find in every other ancient holy space are idol images that physically represent the God. Oh, right. Israel's God explicitly commanded them to not make any idol images. And that's because in the Bible, all humanity is God's image. This is what we learn in the first pages of the Bible, where Adam and Eve, in Hebrew their names mean human and life, they're called God's image, which means they represent God in his holy space. And that holy space is a garden in a land called Eden. Yes, and the story is designed to show that Eden is the reality that the later tabernacle symbolized and pointed back to. For example, look close at the descriptions of Eden. There's the larger region on the land that's called Eden, but then within Eden, God plants a garden. And then in the center of that garden, God plants the tree of life. The design of Eden matches the tabernacle design. Yes, and there are details in the Eden story that are developed much later in the Bible showing how Eden is on a high mountain. Because they're in a place where earth meets heaven. Exactly. And God tells these humans to work and to keep the garden. These are the same words that are used later in the Bible to describe what priests do in the tabernacle. So Adam and Eve are God's image and are like priests working and worshiping in a type of heaven on earth temple. Yes, they represent creation before God. And as God's image, they represent God to all of creation. And they do all of this in this sacred space that's saturated with the life and presence of God. And so God tells them to rule creation on his behalf. They're like priests who embody God's heavenly wisdom and rule here on earth. You could call them royal priests. Exactly. Now, this whole setup, the royal priests in God's presence where there's abundance and life, in the book of Genesis, this is called God's blessing. But it doesn't last very long. No. Humanity is deceived by this rebellious creature. 
They're unsatisfied with being images of God, and so they make a grab at being God, ruling creation on their own terms. And so God exiles them from the garden. And God places Kerovim at the door of Eden to guard the way back in. This is tragic. Humanity has given up the role God made them for. But it's not the end. The rest of the biblical story is about God's mission to undo this tragedy so that humans can regain access to the heaven on earth place where they can finally become God's royal priests. It all begins with... All right. So let's do another round. Hopefully you have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 1 and we'll do another, another round of how God describes what it means to be made in his image. So beginning in verse 26... It says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that, there's the purpose, why? So that they may rule. So they're gonna rule over creation. It says over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all of that. Later in chapter two, we learn they even name the animals, which is very important, very important role. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Okay, he's giving them a job to do. This is what it means. Fill the earth and subdue it, which doesn't mean um, destroy it. Rule. There it is again. All right, so God describes part of the purpose of, the hum of humanity and part of that purpose is to do all those things. And then verse 15 of chapter two, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. In Hebrew, that's a phrase like right out of what was said that the priests would do in the tabernacle. So Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer back in the 16th century, said he was comment, it was commentary on one of the Psalms that's talking about God and what he does in, for the people of Israel. And he said, and, and in creation, and he says, think about it. He says, God could have created the world to work on its own. Really think about that. God could have created the world to work on its own. In our language today, we could say, God could have created the world to be run by a benevolent artificial intelligence computer programmed by God, one that will not take over the world, all right? And so, and then humanity, God would take care of everything. And then humanity could play and just enjoy uh, the fruit of that garden. And I think that's somehow some people <clears throat> think of paradise, think of the Garden of Eden as a place where before humanity rejects God by trying to become gods, that humanity could just play, you know, and would just play. That's all they would do. Uh, we think of the new creation that Jesus is going to bring, that it's going to be a place where we just play. But that is not how the Bible talks about it. Jesus talked over and over again how we are going to be given responsibility in the new creation. All the time he's talking about that. And in the description of what the Adam and Eve are doing, they are working in the garden, they are working. So God could have created <clears throat> the world to work on its own. Instead, God created us to work and rule as obviously, very, very obviously, stewards, managers of his world. 
Paradise included meaningful work, and so will the new creation. I want to give you an illustration of this. Um, It's a story told, you've you've heard of, most of you have heard of Stephen Covey who wrote The the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, something like that. And uh, this story that he tells, but then his son wrote a book and tells the same story, but from his perspective, and I got it from the son's perspective. So his son says when he was seven years old, and he likes to emphasize, understand, this is what my dad, and he was a great dad, he says, this is what my dad did when I was seven years old. He said to me, you are now in charge of the yard. Seven years old, you're in charge of the yard. And your job is to keep it green and clean. All right, he didn't do everything for the yard, but his job was to keep the, the lawn green and the lawn clean. And he said, a couple times a week, we're gonna walk through the yard and you're, gonna, you're going to tell me how it's looking. Is it green and is it clean? You're gonna report to me on this. And just understand this, if you need help along the way, just ask. And if I, if I can help, I will help you. And so it was a particularly hot week and he was seven years old. And he spent the whole week playing baseball. It was summer, summer, and he spent the whole week playing baseball with his friends because that's what he most loved to do. And by the end of the week, the lawn was neither green nor clean. It was getting very yellow and there was a mess on the yard from a picnic that the family had had the weekend before. So they go for the inspection and his dad turns to him and says, is the lawn green and clean? And he goes, no, it's not, dad. Well, what are you gonna do? And he says, dad, it's just too hard. To which his dad said, "Uh, son, how can it be hard? You haven't done anything. And he says, well, it's just, just, uh, will you help me? He said, I told you I would help you. Yeah, I can help you. What do you want me to do? He says, well, that, that mess over there from last weekend, can you clean that up? He said, sure. And he went in, got a bag, and he cleaned up the mess while his son took care of some of the other things in the yard. He said, when his dad literally turned to him and said, what do you want me to do? He said, I realized he was serious. This is my job. This is my job to do. Now, it's not a perfect analogy, but I think you get the point. God could have done the garden work. He could have installed sprinklers in the garden. Um, he could have had machines to, you know, to harvest. He could have done all those things, but instead he delegates. It really is our job. It really is our job. We have a real job. That Humanity had a real job. We're given work to do. We've been designed... Think about it. He designed us. He made us. He designed us to work. We're called to work by adding value to others' lives, and we do it for Him. We do it for Him. Your work is a stewardship. Your work is a stewardship. But it's even more profound than that. Your work, whatever it is you do to bring value to others, the goods and services that you provide to others. It makes God visible when you do it for him. It makes God visible to the people around you when you do it for him. In a book that I'm reading, the author talks about The Invisible Man, um, television show back from the 50s. 
And what he remembers when he was watching it as a kid and reruns, he said, if people wanted to make the Invisible Man visible, they would do something like pour something on him like paint. And then they could see him walking around. They could see his shape. They could see where he was going. You know, that kind of thing. And the, the author in that book applies it to something else. But I'm going to go ahead and seal it and apply it to our work and our lives. And uh, this, is, this is the idea that I want you to leave with. Your work is the paint that makes the invisible God visible. It's not just uh, the body of Christ. It's not just when you are doing Christian ministry work that you are the hands and feet of Jesus. The actual work that you do. For Adam and Eve, it was as, you can say, as mundane as naming animals and taking care of a garden and procreating. As simple as that was, that was a way, because it had been delegated by God, that was a way of making the invisible God visible. We make the invisible God visible in that way. Your work matters to God and God matters to your work. So how do you respond? How do you respond? Well, for some, maybe you need to go get a job, right? Maybe you need to rethink your week, what you do Monday to Friday, and you need, and, and maybe it's about you. It's all about you. You could even have a paying job and make it all about you. But maybe you need to get a job. Uh, do you need to change your mindset? Maybe you need to develop a title so you can be clear about the work that you do if you don't necessarily get paid for the work that you do. Um, do you have a job that is paid or unpaid? When you go to work, when you go to school, remember, God delegated work for you to do, whatever it is you do. And so your work matters to God, and God matters to your work. Well, we're going to begin that response, um, our response to God's word together now, and I um, can get the elements ready uh, for communion. But I want you to think about that God who has um, had, it was a God who works. It, it literally says on the seventh day, God rested from the work that he did. All right, so we have a God who works. We are to reflect his workerness. And um, one of the things that God did for us is when that, Remember in the video when that serpent uh, deceived Adam and Eve and they get kicked out of the garden, God established, it's on the third page of the Bible, God established right then and there a rescue mission to bring humanity back into a relationship with him, to prepare humanity for an eternity in the new creation serving God, but also to create in us a life that brings honor and glory to God in the work that we do. In Jesus' work, imagine he spent the majority of his adult life as a laborer. Do you think what he was doing was sacred work? It wasn't sacred just because he was Jesus. It was sacred because he did it as unto the Lord. And then he began to teach. And then he went to the cross. And he did the work of our salvation. He took our sins on the cross, on himself. He took our sins. 
And he paid the penalty for our rebellion, for the fact that we have made ourselves God and have ruined his earth, <laughs> ruined the relationships, ruined that sense of I belong to God and I live for him and I do his work. He took it on himself and we receive what he did, we receive it by faith. So as we celebrate communion, we're always celebrating the grace of God that Jesus took on himself our sins and brought forgiveness. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The scripture tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work that you've done, the work of creation, the work of creating us, making us in your image. We thank you for the work that you call us to do in your name, stewarding these lives that we have, stewarding for you, not for ourselves, but for you and serving you. Father, I pray that we would, we would see that. I pray for all of us that as we go into our work this week, that we would see that, that it's for you, that we make you visible to the people around us. Help us to live with that type of mindset, that in everything that we do, the details of our work, that we would do it as unto you, that we would be your worker priests, and that we would be your royal priests, and that you would shine because of that. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.